All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue our study of Acts there. Uh, we have been studying Christian community from the book of Acts. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and it brings truth and life. So each week we read it, we study it, and we meditate upon it. And what we've seen so far through Acts, and what we're going to continue to see over and over again, is that Acts shows us how the early church continued the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're trying to learn how can we continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Last week, we studied the first half of the Pentecost story. Uh, that's the story when the believers are gathered together in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit falls on them in a miraculous and powerful way. Uh, they experience God's presence it comes like a wind, it comes like a fire, and they are supernaturally enabled to praise God in other languages, right? Today, we're going to look at the second half of that passage, uh, where Peter begins to preach and explain what is going on, okay? So you've ever had questions, hey, what was happening there? What was going on? How does this apply to me? That's what we're going to look at uh, this morning, and Peter is going to help us see it. So uh, this sermon is called The Power of the Church, and, and I'm going to give you the three points up front, and then we're just going to jump right into them this morning. Uh, there's going to be, we're going to see the outpouring of the Spirit, the cutting of the Spirit, and the cleansing of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit, the cutting of the, of the Spirit, and the cleansing of the Spirit. Kids, I want you to listen for a story about a dog named Barry. Who doesn't love a good dog story? So listen for a story about a dog named Barry. First thing we're looking at is the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not God's word. It stands forever. So let's listen to it. As we saw last week, to understand what happened at Pentecost You've got to understand the Old Testament. Peter shows us that right away as he, as he quotes Joel 2 and he says, what you're seeing is fulfilling what Joel prophesied, right? So what is this passage saying? Okay, let me tell you what it's not saying. It is not saying that all Christians everywhere are going to have the office of prophet. There were... Uh, prophets in, that had a, 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 spe, a special, specific God-ordained office in the body uh, in the Old Testament 
and the New Testament. And they received the word of God and they revealed the word of God for all people. Okay? That office has ceased. There's no longer prophets that give us special revelation because special revelation has ceased. Now we have illumination. Now the Holy Spirit helps us understand the word of God. So this is not the office of prophet, and it's not um, a gift of, of foretelling the future. It's not saying that now all Christians have some mystical ability that they can tell the future. They can explain what's going to happen. They can explain uh, when the end of the world is coming and how it's going to come about. Okay, that, that type of futuristic prophecy is recorded in the Bible by the apostles and prophets that we had in the New Testament. And so God has told us what we need to know about the future, kind of like we tell our kids on a road trip, right? Hey, I'll tell you where we're going and how we're going to get there, but, but the details you're going to have to figure out along the way. Okay, so God has told us what we need to know about the future, but he's not giving us uh, these visionary details as we go along. So what is uh, Peter and Joel saying here? I think what they're saying is that, that every person in the body of Christ, every person who's a Christian, receives the Spirit so that they can understand the Word of God, they can know God, and they can proclaim God. They can understand God, they can know God, and they can proclaim God. They have that illumination of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't always like this. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Spirit was working, but the Spirit was uh, working, um, so we say, selectively. There were certain kings, certain prophets, certain priests that experienced uh, the, 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 the fullness of the Spirit, and that allowed them to understand the Word of God and proclaim it to the people. Well, when you get to the New Testament, what do you see? You see that all Christians have God's Spirit. And so all Christians can understand the Word of God. They can know God and have a relationship with Him, and they can proclaim God. Uh, maybe you've heard about the priesthood of all believers. We believe that, that all Christians are priests in a sense that they can come into God's presence. They can, they can know him. They can pray to him. They don't have to have a, a priest to mediate. Their, their priest is Jesus. He's the great high priest. So there's a priesthood of all believers. Maybe you, you probably have heard about the, the, the kingship of all believers, that we're all uh, kings and queens in God's kingdom. Well, I think what Peter and Joel are saying here, that in, in some general way, uh, we're all prophets in God's kingdom. We can all understand him and his word, and we can all experience the power of his word and his presence in our lives each day. Uh, one of the commentaries I read gave a great illustration of this. Uh, it said that in 1953, the president of Egypt decided we are going to build a dam along the Nile River and we are going to harness all the power of the Nile. We're going to turn it into hydroelectric power, and it's going to power the entire country of Egypt. And so that's what they did. For 20 years, they stopped up the Nile River, they built a dam, they filled it, and in 1973, they flipped the switch, and it produced 10 billion kilowatts of electricity, enough to power all of Egypt. Well, during that 20-year span while they were building the dam, they couldn't cut all the water off because down the, downstream on the Nile, you had all these, these peasants and these farmers that relied on the water of the Nile to raise their crops, to feed their animals, to live. And so what they did is they allowed a little bit of the water 
from the Nile to trickle down to those farmers while they stopped it up to build the dam and fill the reservoir. So there was a selective amount of the water going before everybody could experience its fullness. That's what you had in the Old Testament. There was a selective amount of the Holy Spirit flowing to certain people until the fullness of the Holy Spirit could come here at Pentecost. So now, all believers everywhere in Christ have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is not for the elite. It is not for the special. It's not for the super gifted. It is for men and women and children and poor people and rich people of all nations and all tribes, all tongues. They all have the fullness of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. So I think the question that you and I ask when you hear that is, well, then how come I don't feel it? <laughs> how come I don't experience that on a day-to-day basis? How come I read my Bible and I don't experience the presence of God? How come I'm, I'm making decisions about my home or my family or my church and I don't have God's guidance? I don't, I don't understand what he wants me to do. Uh, how come I'm struggling with sin that I can't defeat? If I have this uh, 10 billion kilowatt Holy Spirit power living inside of my life, how do I access it? How do I experience it? Well, Peter is going to tell us. He preaches us a sermon. And what we see here in this sermon, and what we see all through the book of Acts is that the power of the Holy Spirit works with the gospel to release that power into our lives. And the first thing it does is it cuts us. The Spirit cuts us. That's the second thing we see in this passage. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What's Peter saying? He's saying Jesus was not a mythical figure. Jesus was uh, a public real, powerful person that did signs and wonders in front of some of these people. And then, and then many of them probably heard about what Jesus did. There may have been people in the audience that were healed by his touch. There may have been people in the audience who were cleansed by his forgiveness. There may have been people there who were fed miraculously in the feeding of the 5,000. They knew that Jesus was a real person. And because he was a real person, they couldn't ignore him. They couldn't just take him as a suggestion. They couldn't just take him as a nice idea or a good teacher. He was a real powerful person. He was a divine God-man. And when they came in contact with that, it cut him. You see, Jesus is real. And Jesus is real for us. And when we come in contact with Jesus, we can't ignore the truth about him. It cuts us. Uh, saw a great example of this a few weeks ago. Tucker is running cross country. I want to help Tucker train. I can't run with Tucker. <laughs> I'm not good at running. And so I rode my bike. So we went out to Mohawk Park and he was going to run the Mohawk Park trails and I was going to ride my bike. So we're about to go into the trails and I see this sign up that says, no biking on the trails. Now, I just thought, you know, that's probably a suggestion. 
it's probably going to be okay, right? Like, surely they don't really mean that, that you can't ride your bike on the trail. Kids don't do this. Follow the signs. So we get on the trail. Tucker starts running. I start riding. We zigzag our way back to the back of the park. And then who do I see on the trail? The trail master. And what does the trail master say to me? He says, you can't ride bikes on the trail. That's the law. That's the rule. I said, okay, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll leave. And so I, I backed it and I left. Well, what happened? I came in contact with the person of truth. And he showed me that that truth was not a suggestion. That truth was a law. He cut me with the truth. When you come in contact with Jesus in the scriptures, he is going to cut you with the truth. And the spirit will cut you with the truth. I had Charlie read the call to worship. We, we picked that passage because I think that passage is cutting, right? Jesus calls Levi and then he goes to a banquet at Levi's house and he's befriending tax collectors and sinners, and Pharisees. He's hanging out with all of them. And he's offering salvation to all of them. He says, I didn't come to heal the healthy. They don't need a doctor. I came to heal the sick. What does that mean? It means that the tax collectors and the sinners, they need to be healed. It means that the Pharisees, they need to be healed. Now, modern day, what does that look like? Uh, Tax collectors and sinners might represent irreligious people. Or, or people who, were, have been, uh, who would be immoral, or um, the people that we, we might put in the category as the, the outcasts, right? And the bad people. Jesus is saying, I came to heal those people. I came to save those people. Those people need to be saved. That you need to be saved from your irreligion. He also came for the Pharisees. That would be the religious people, or what we might call the good people. He's saying, hey, You guys aren't so good that you don't need to be saved. You actually need to be saved too. So the the truth of the gospel is that that religious people, that irreligious people and religious people need to be saved. That we all need to be saved. That we're all sinners deeply in need of God's grace. There's no one who has sinned too much that they can't be saved. And there's no one who's been too good that they don't need to be saved. We come in contact with that truth and it, and it cuts us. The life of Jesus has, cuts us. Then the, the death of Jesus cuts us. We see this in verse 23. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this passage says, that God drew up the plan of salvation, including the death of Jesus. And everything that happened, happened because that's how God drew it up. So you have God's sovereignty here, but you also have man's responsibility. The people carried it out. Some of the people in that audience, including Peter, witnessed Jesus die. Many of them did not. Remember, uh, we had thousands of people that came to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. And so they probably hadn't seen Jesus' death, but they probably had heard about it. So they came after Jesus suffered and died. They didn't carry out the execution like the Roman soldiers. 
They didn't betray him like Judas. They didn't deny him like Peter. They didn't abandon him like the disciples. But Peter looked at them and said, you crucified him. How can you look at people who weren't even there and say, you crucified him? Well, he knew what the rest of the Bible teaches, and that's that Jesus died at the hands of the soldiers, but he died for our sins. That the reason why he was crucified is because of us. And in this way, every person was complicit in Jesus' crucifixion. There's blood on all our hands. And that means that we crucified the very person that came to save us. Uh, there's, a, there's a great story. It's based on a true story. It's about Barry the St. Bernard. There's a children's book about it. Barry the St. Bernard was a real dog that lived in a monastery in the mountains. And he was trained to do a very specific and important tasks, task. He, uh, he lived with the monks, but he would go out and he would find hikers that were uh, buried in the avalanches, right? So they're in the mountains, avalanche falls, hiker gets trapped, uh, they're, they're frozen, they're unconscious. Well, the dog, Barry, would come and he would lick the hikers to wake them up. And then he would rouse them and try to drag them out of the, the snow so that they could get rescued and saved. Well, uh, one night, a, uh, Barry wakes up, he, he senses that something is wrong, he scratches the door. The monk lets him out. He runs to find a, a hiker who's been buried in the avalanche, digs him out of the avalanche, uh, licks him, because that's what he's supposed to do to wake him up. The hiker wakes up and thinks it's a grizzly bear, grabs his knife, and stabs Barry. What did that hiker do? He stabbed the very person that came to save him. What did we do in the crucifixion? We crucified the very person that came to save us. His blood is on all of our hands. And we look at the cross and we see that Jesus was pierced for our anger, our unforgiveness, our alcoholism, our sexual immorality, our self-righteousness. It cuts us to the heart as we see our sin. But what also cuts us to the heart is we see his love. Right? Jesus was able to suffer for us because he was God. And he was willing to suffer us because he loved us. And it's both the, the suffering of Jesus and the love of Jesus that cuts our hearts. Could you imagine how that hiker felt once he realized what Barry had come to do, that he came to save him. And he pierced the very one that loved him and cared for him. That's what happens when we see the cross. Imagine being Peter, seeing Jesus crucified, and realizing that it was his betrayal that put Jesus on the cross, but it was Jesus' love that kept him on the cross for Peter. When we see the, the, the suffering of Jesus, it, it cuts us. When we see the truth of Jesus' life, it cuts us. And we see the resurrection, it cuts us. Uh, verse 24, Peter says, And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on us, he has poured out this day on you, yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached the resurrection of Jesus. He saw the resurrection of Jesus. Peter, the twelve, James, Paul, more than 500 other people saw that Jesus rose from the grave. Satan and sin could not defeat him. Death couldn't halt him. And when he rose from the grave, he ascended victoriously onto his throne. You have the resurrection and the ascension. We studied that a couple weeks ago. That ascension was Jesus ascending the throne to be the king, to rule and reign over all things. And that's why Peter declares here that God has made Jesus both Lord That means king and Christ. That means savior. Jesus is Lord and savior. And to be a Christian means to have him as Lord and savior. You can't have one without the other. It's like like Lord and savior. They're Jesus' names. They are who he is. That'd be like saying, I want to have Shane, but I don't want to have Hatfield. You can't have Shane without having Hatfield because I'm Shane Hatfield. You have to have both of those things. You can't have Jesus as your Savior without him also being your Lord. He is the king of your life. To to be a Christian, to be saved, is to have Jesus as your king. To become a Christian is to bow your knee before the king and surrender. And say, though I crucified you, yet you loved me. And you are my king. You see, either Jesus is the king or we are the king. You can't have both. Either Jesus sits on the throne of your heart or you sit on the throne of your heart. I want to ask you this morning, who sits on the throne of your heart? Is it Jesus or is it you? To be a Christian is to let Jesus sit there. Just like Queen Elizabeth II couldn't be the supreme monarch of the UK and Charles, Charles at the same time, they couldn't do it. One of them had to sit. The same way, either Jesus has to sit on your heart or you have to sit on your heart. Which one will it be? Um, to be a Christian is to let him sit on the throne of your heart, to surrender to him. Uh, this week, one of my friends cut me with the truth. 
Uh, I, I have a, a coach, a counselor that I meet with on a regular basis, and we were talking about some of the, the struggles, the challenges that I'm having in my personal life, in my professional life. And, and we were talking, you know, we talk about things like personality profiles and family history and all that sort of stuff. And he said, well, you know, Shane, your personality profile is the most difficult to work with. I said, it is? He's like, yeah, because you think you're always right. Cut me with the truth. So then I started thinking about that, and I thought, man, if I'm that hard to work with, God bless Steve and Charlie and everybody else, imagine what I'm like to live with. Because that, in your home, that's really where you see somebody's true character. Because that's really where you think you are the king of your castle or the queen of your castle. And you don't live under anybody else's authority. That's what you think. So I went home and I had to apologize to my family. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm so hard to live with. <laughs> I'm sorry that I have to be in control of everything. And I spent the weekend trying to surrender to my family on our family weekend, our family vacation time. And I will tell you that it was challenging. That every, every minute of, of being the, the leader to my family and surrendering to them, to their wants, to their needs, their desires... It cut me every time. But it was only through that cutting that I experienced the joy of being with my family and the joy of living under Jesus' kingship. Because the reality is, when we walk between those walls of our home, we are always under Jesus' authority. He is always king. The question is, are we submitting to him or not? And it's that truth that cuts us. Peter says it in verse 37, right? What did they say after they heard the truth of the gospel? It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And we come to the end of Peter's sermon and we ask the same question. What shall we do? How do I have this 10 billion kilowatt Holy Spirit power at work in my life? so that I can live and love the way that Jesus lived and loved. Well, Peter tells us in verses 37 through 41. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So how do we receive this filling? How do we receive this power? Peter tells us right away, repent. We repent. We turn from our sin, the sin of being our own Lord and our own Savior, and we embrace Christ. We say, he is my Lord. He is my Savior. I surrender to him. Repentance means you let Jesus sit on the throne of your heart and you get down from the throne. To do that, you can't negotiate with Jesus. You can't say, well, Jesus, I would love for you to save me from my alcoholism, but I'm not going to forgive my family. It doesn't work that way. You can't negotiate with him. He's either Lord or he isn't. 
You can't say, Jesus, I I would love for you to to save me from this stress at work, but but I'm not going to really, I'm not going to really change the way that I parent. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, uh, Jesus, I want you to save me from my, uh, from my, from my, uh, my shame, from feeling like I'm not enough, but I'm not going to obey my parents. It doesn't work that way. You come to Jesus and you give your whole life to him. You surrender your whole life to him, all of it, everything, every aspect. What shall I do? What shall I give over to you? And that's where you experience the cleansing. He comes into all those nooks and crannies and crevices, and he cleanses you. He brings forgiveness. That's what Peter offers. You get forgiveness. And it is so important that we take responsibility for our sins in all these areas. Uh, Modern psychology and modern culture has almost disabled us from taking responsibility for our sins. When we eliminate a transcendent view of God, and moral absolutes, and the necessity for atonement, how else are we going to find forgiveness? We can't find forgiveness, so what do we do? We blame other people. We, uh, we deny. We live in denial. We live in blame. But unfortunately, we can't experience forgiveness any other way. The only, experience, the only way you can experience the cleansing waters of forgiveness is to, to take responsibility for your sin. It's to look at Jesus and say, I did that. I have blood on my hands. And you stare at him. And you see the sins you committed. And you stare until you see his love. And you see his grace. And you see his forgiveness. And you hear him on the cross say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they, they, know not what they do. And the Holy Spirit cleanses you in that moment when you say, Father, forgive me. Uh, John says, if anyone confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins and purify him from all unrighteousness. That purification is a cleansing, and that cleansing is symbolized in our baptism. That's why these Christians were baptized. It's a transition point from the Old Testament uh, sign of circumcision to the New Testament sign of baptism. And so you have these Jews who were already circumcised, but now they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And that sign is a symbol of the cleansing that they have in Christ, that all their sins have been washed away. And it's, it's in that repentance and that forgiveness that we receive the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're filled with the Spirit. Peter says, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's a fullness and a feeling that, that all Christians receive, uh, it's not, a, it's not something for the elite. It's not something for the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the unique. It's the normal experience of all Christians to be filled with the Spirit. So why don't we experience it on a regular basis? Because we're leaky. We're leaky. We're leaky vessels. The problem is not with the Holy Spirit. The problem is with us. In that moment when we're, we're parenting our kids and we're reacting out of anger and not out of the Spirit, the problem is not with the Spirit, it's, not, it's with us. Uh, the problem, you know, the, the moment when we're at work and we're trying to work with our coworkers and we just, uh, we want to control them and manipulate them instead of love and serve them, the problem is not with the Spirit in that moment, the problem is with us. When we, when we can't 
get along with our spouse when we can't compromise. The problem is not with the Spirit, it's with us. When we can't forgive our family, the problem is not with the Spirit, the problem is with us. It's because we're leaky. And we need the gospel over and over and over again. We need this message of grace that Christ died. Christ lived, he died, he was raised again for our salvation. As we repent and we receive the gospel, we receive the Holy Spirit. We're refilled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 18, he says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And that filling is a present tense progressive. He's talking to Christians. You're already filled. So he's saying, go on, continue being filled with the Spirit. The normal experience of the Christian life is to repent and believe the gospel and to be continually filled with the Spirit. And as we do that, that Holy Spirit power is released in our lives and in this world. Let me close with this. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And when he was in college, uh, he went to a secular college. Um, and uh, he, he took a Western civilization class. And during that Western civ class, they, uh, they made him read articles uh, written by historians. And the articles were trying to explain why Christianity took over the Roman culture so quickly and so powerfully. It started out with this group of peasants uh, who were uneducated and unsophisticated. Uh, and yet, uh, within a few years, Christianity totally swept through the whole culture and took it over. And so him and his classmates, they read these articles, and he's, he said that there were three reasons that he remembers why this happened. The first was that they died better than anyone. Like literally they said Christians died better than anyone. When they were thrown to the lions, they would sing and hug and smile. They'd never seen anything like it. Secondly, he said they were more inclusive. Until Christianity, religion had always divided people into different races and regions and classes. But Christianity took everyone. It took the rich and the poor, the black, uh, the, the, the different races, black, white, brown, they took Jews. Uh, it took, uh, you know, Jews required you to become Jewish. Greeks required you to become Greek. Romans required you to become Roman. Christians took everyone. They were inclusive. They took women. And they were inclusive. They died well. And then lastly, they cared for others better than anyone else. The early Christians cared for the poor. The Romans only cared for their poor. The Jews only cared for their poor. But the Christians cared for everybody's poor. And so the, the, the historians tried to understand what, what, what made these people do this because they had no prior model. Nobody else did this before. And so one historian said this. He said, uh, there must have been an un something that caused it, caused it all, an underlying cause. And he said, it must have been a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in the history of the world without it in which the future course of this religion was inexplicable. A vast release of energy unequaled in the history of the world. We have it right here. Peter tells us exactly what it is. It's the Holy Spirit unleashed the preaching of the gospel. That's the power of the church. That's the power of the Christian community. That's the power for your life and my life. So let's go to the Lord and repent and receive this refilling of the Holy Spirit together. Please pray with me.